0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chasley in New York. The Russian assault on Azovstal continues. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the bombardment of the steel plant in Mariupol is now non-stop. And the regiment inside have accused the Russians of breaching a ceasefire. CNN is unable to verify that a ceasefire was in effect. Officials also believe around 200 civilians remain trapped inside. A medic inside the plant says people are dying in agony from bullet wounds, hunger and lack of medicine. Over in eastern Ukraine, Russian forces have made some small progress in parts of the Donbass region, according to the Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. But that progress is not as much as the Kremlin expected to have made at this point. Kirby also said Ukrainian troops are, quote, putting up very stiff resistance. Meanwhile, symbols of the Russian invasion and presence in parts of southern Ukraine continue to appear, especially in Mariupol. The self declared Donetsk People's Republic is changing road signs from Ukrainian to Russian. And this week, Russian soldiers were awarded medals for, quote, the liberation of Mariupol. Scott McLean joins us live now from Lviv. Scott, let's uh, hone in on once again on what we're seeing in Azovstal. It feels like more of the same more violence, more fighting, and more desperate struggles to release those trapped civilians.
2: Yeah, there is still some hope, Julia, and that's because. Uh, The Ukrainians and also the United Nations have said that this evacuation mission is ongoing. It has already started. The hope, according to the United Nations yesterday, is that the evacuation convoy would arrive at the plant this morning to try to take people out. Now, the president of Ukraine says that they're not only hoping to get civilians out, but also soldiers. There are many of them who are wounded. We don't know the status of the...
1: And we appear to have lost Scott there. We'll try and go back to him if we can re-establish the line. For now, I'll mention in the next half an hour, we'll hear about the impact of the war on the economy and people's lives from Ukraine's central bank. The governor of the National Bank of Ukraine will join us shortly for an exclusive interview. Now, as Scott was saying there, the war. Just one factor creating significant turbulence across financial markets to stocks in the midst of their worst period since the 2020 lockdowns, pressured by geopolitical uncertainty, China's slowing economy, and fears that central bankers will force their economies into recession by trying to tackle higher prices. Let me give you a sense of what we're seeing across global financial markets. As you can see, it is virtually a sea of red. US futures also losing ground once again today. After Thursday's sharp pullback. The worst session, in fact, on Wall Street in almost two years. Europe is also under pressure, as you can see. Their losses across the Asia session. The Hang Seng dropping more than 3%, in fact, almost nearly 4%. You can see on the screen there the volatility on Wall Street this week has been Well, breathtaking. All the major Wall Street averages dropping more than 3% Thursday with tech in fact down near 5% and that after rallying 3% during Wednesday's session. Volatility, of course, and uncertainty always unsettling for investors. A little perspective, though, too. The Dow and the S&P coming to today's session, at least, still a touch higher on the week but admittedly down between 10 and 25% from recent highs for those indices. Now, crucial U.S. jobs data today too just released numbers showing the U.S. adding 428,000 net new jobs last month. A bit better, in fact, than expected. The numbers showing the U.S. labour market remains a relative economic bright spot, at least for now. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, great to have you with us. Just walk us through all the numbers that we saw today from this report
3: good to be with you, Julia. Yeah, the headline from the report that was just released about 30 minutes ago is that the labor market here in the U.S. is extremely tight but steady. To put that in context, the, the number that we heard this morning, the 428,000 jobs added, Julia, that now makes the 12th straight month of job gains of more than 400,000. Uh, the labor market, again, extremely tight. When we look at the unemployment rate, that's now unchanged at 3.6 percent. But to put that in perspective, before the pandemic, February of 2020, the unemployment rate was at 3.5, and that was a 50-year low. Just really gives you a sense of sort of where we are in the jobs market. When we look at well, let's take a look at some of the last few months. You can see, again, March was 428,000, February 714. Part of the reason we saw that huge spike that month was because of sort of Omicron lifting and the reopenings. Now, when we look at the report today and some of the strongest gains, what what industries? It was industries like leisure, hospitality, manufacturing, transportation, and warehousing. Uh, yearly hourly wages increased 5.5 percent, perhaps a bright spot for employees, but not necessarily when you think about inflation. Uh, so that's sort of the, the situation here. We have uh, hourly wages increasing 5.5%, but we also have inflation sort of rising at its fastest pace in 40 years, the latest CPI figure coming in at 8.5. Uh, so yes, 12 straight months of 400,000 jobs added. It's part of the reason why Powell uh, has called the unemployment market or the, the labor market almost unhealthily hot, right? We heard him on Wednesday talk about how there are 1.9 open jobs for every unemployed person. It's it's part of the challenge uh, that companies find themselves in as consumers continue to spend and the demand remains hot and companies try to hire people to sort of keep up with that demand. It's uh, a very delicate and tricky spot for the Federal Reserve as they try to manage inflation, Julia.
1: Yeah, a bit of wage inflation should be a good thing, but the broader backdrop makes it complicated to say the least. Rahel, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Richard, Quest joins us now on this. Richard, I was just thinking about this actually as I was listening to Rahel, and it's almost a case of the, the Fed having hanging on in there and providing support in order to gain the next or the final one to two million jobs at the expense of raising prices and conditions for 150 million other people in the US economy. None of that is relevant today because whatever it takes, they've got to rein in inflation.
4: Yes, because it's so much out of control than they actually expected. And to your very good point, if you look at the way the statement changed uh, with the dual mandate in the last few in the last 18 months or so, the the attention and has been focused on is the full employment side of it. Well, full employment has arrived and then some. You've got that wage inflation. You talk about a five point five percent year on year increase in average earnings. And yet that's negative when you put it in terms of inflation. On a nominal level, it's it's fine. But on a real level, people. So we have the worst of all situations here. We have real incomes actually falling. We have inflation exceptionally high. And we have interest rates going up because the Fed now has only one uh, duty, responsibility, one ambition, and that's to bring inflation down.
1: Yeah, and the consequence of that, of course, turbulence on on financial markets, wherever you look, not just in the United States, of course, but but around the world. Well,
4: and I think what you saw, of course, in the UK is you've seen the Bank of England, the fourth increase in interest rates, with more to come. The the bank itself basically says, Central Bank basically saying there's a recession on the cards. And the ECB, interestingly, uh, Christine Lagarde had wanted to finish the non traditional, the bond buying, and maybe start raising rates in September, October. Uh, President Lagarde is not going to be able to do that. It now looks like the hawks on the Bundesbank Governing Council will bring that forward. So we could see the Bundesbank, uh, the, the ECB, raising rates as early as July. That's the latest thinking. The totality of my message this morning with you, Julia there is every reason for markets to be unhappy. And remain unhappy for the foreseeable future until they get cheap enough to buy. Yeah, that's a great point, particularly
1: given the backdrop and the level of uncertainty that we're seeing. An adjustment has to happen. Richard, always great to chat to you. you. (laughs) Thank you. Now adding to the uncertainty that we were just discussing there and the fears, President Xi Jinping not backing down on his zero COVID policy and making sure everyone knows it. Selina Wang joins us now. Selina, you and I have, have long been discussing the challenges, the social pressures that Xi Jinping and the government are under as a result of their COVID policies that they're taking. What was fascinating to me about this was you you have to try and understand what's going on behind the scenes and the pressure that he must be feeling socially and politically to have to come out and make the statement that, look, we're sticking with this, come what may.
5: And not only that, it was also a direct warning to anyone who dissents against him, was a direct shot at them. In this top meeting with Communist Party leader, Xi Jinping vowed to, quote, unswervingly adhere to the general policy of dynamic zero COVID and resolutely fight against any words and acts that distort, doubt, or deny our country's epidemic prevention policies. So Julia, if there was any wavering as to whether or not China was going to stick with this policy because of the devastating impact it's had on the economy and on some people's lives, well, this totally quashes any of that doubt. And after the news, we saw China Chinese markets fall more than 2% with the tech stocks hit especially hard. Investors are especially terrified and rattled by the fact that this speech made no mention of balancing zero COVID with the economy. And we've been discussing just how severe the hit has been to the economy. We saw the services sector. It contracted at the second sharpest pace on record factory activity contracting for the second straight month. This is as the capital in Beijing, they continue to ramp up these COVID-19 restrictions, even though COVID cases there remain relatively low. And in Shanghai, Still, many of the city's 25 million people have been sealed in their homes for more than a month. In fact, across China, at least 30 cities are under some form of COVID 19 lockdown, and that's impacting up to 198 million people. So these harsh words, after what we heard from Xi Jinping, you should also expect to see more censorship of dissenting voices online, in fact, even potentially of economists. For instance, Chinese social media recently shut down the accounts of a prominent market analyst, Hong Hao, who is at Bocom International, he had recently made critical posts about the dramatic slowdown in china's economy as well as the severe capital outflows his social media accounts all shut down and in fact he has also since left their banks now julia there are serious concerns about china opening up and learning to live with COVID. vaccination rates among the elderly are still low and there is a concern that the health system could be severely overrun and we could see COVID deaths skyrocket but there is agreement that This zero-COVID strategy is also about politics. Xi Jinping has put his personal stamp on this, so experts see this as a reason why there is this unquestioning, unwavering dedication to this because it is tied to his leadership. So no matter the economic, the human toll, zero-COVID for now is here to stay. Julia?
1: Right, and you raise a great point that actually flexibility on this might not be an option given the preparations in the country, which is a valid point too. Selena White, thank you so much for that. More after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. I think we've managed to re-establish our contact with Scott McLean over in Lviv. So I'm going to try and go back to him now. Scott, we were talking to you earlier on in the show about the challenges of trying to evacuate people at the same time as what seems to be ongoing bombardment of that steel plant. What more can you tell us? What more do we know?
2: Exactly. So the latest that we've been told is that this evacuation convoy is in progress. It is In route, it is there. We're not sure exactly. Officials are in radio silence mode, not wanting to jeopardize the success of the operation. In terms of militarily around that steel plant, the latest update that we have from the Ukrainian military is that um, the the plant is still blocked off by the Russian military. Sometimes they're firing on it. And we've just gotten a further update from the Azov Regiment. That's the part of the Ukrainian military that's doing the bulk of the fighting there. They say that an anti-tank missile was fired at a car that was helping with evacuations during what they described was a ceasefire period. They say that one person was killed and six were injured, and they say that this is just one example of the Russians breaking their commitments to these ceasefire agreements, though we're not in a position at this stage to verify that there even was a ceasefire agreement in place because, as I said, officials are saying nothing about this. Now, there have been some predictions as well that the Russians may use the symbolism around May 9th, the Victory Day, over Nazi Germany back in 1945. That anniversary is coming up in a few days. And there's been some speculation that perhaps the Russians will use the symbolism of that day to declare victory, declare war, declare something. And the Kremlin was asked whether or not they might parade the military through Mariupol. And they um, they didn't shoot it down. They just said they didn't know what the military's plans were at this stage. The Russians have not begun rebuilding Mariupol, but on the ground, as you mentioned earlier in the show, Julia, there are some signs that they're at least redecorating, changing some of the road signs, especially into the entrance of the city from Ukrainian language into Russian language. They've also erected a a statue of an old woman carrying a Soviet Union flag. They've, um, They've also rolled out old statues, some refurbished, some Soviet era statues. And of course, the Russian flag is now flying at city hall. Julia?
1: I mean you can't you can't take anything away from that symbolism, I think, and the images that we're seeing being presented by some of the officials from, from I Like heartbreaking again, more heartbreak on top of heartbreak for, for the Ukrainians seeing this. Scott, great to have you with us. Thank you. Scott McLean there in Lviv. Thank you. you Now over $500 billion. That's the figure Ukraine puts on the total damage caused to its economy in just the first six weeks of Russia's war alone. Bridges, roads and homes worth $270 billion have been destroyed. It says 30% of businesses shut down initially, according to a research institute there. President Zelensky says a full-scale recovery will cost at least $600 billion. The United States and Europe have vowed to support Ukraine as it grapples with the economic fallout of war. This week, the European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde invited the governor of Ukraine's National Bank to a meeting with central bank heads of the Eurozone nations. Joining us now is Kirill Shevchenko. He's the governor of the National Bank of Ukraine. Governor, fantastic to have you with us on the show. We appreciate your time. I know you've probably had much to discuss with the, EU, the European Central Bank, but can you just start by giving us a sense of what your latest numbers are on the scale of the damage to the economy and perhaps what recovery you're seeing as you recapture parts of the country that were initially taken? Thank you. Okay, I seem to have lost a connection there, too. It is just one of those shows. Governor Shevchenko, can you hear me?
6: Yeah, I can hear you.
1: Okay. Sorry Don't worry. for I... the
6: connection. I'm speaking That's from okay.
1: The... Please, I'm, I'm so grateful I, to this have you probably. here. Yes, we should expect some connection issues. Um, Thank you. Just Just start by telling us the current economic situation in the country and what you're forecasting, what you were telling the European Central Bank, and is it improving to any degree as a result of getting parts of the country back up and running again?
7: Okay, so uh, in terms of the
5: system, I don't understand that it sounds like a miracle, but we have a banking system in you mode. I mean, uh, the digital system are completely, uh, you know.
1: Okay, I think
6: operate are, are open.
1: Governor, we're uh, we're having uh, some ongoing difficulties with your connection. I don't want to to waste your time because I know you have very important meetings. We're gonna let you go, I think, uh, and try and reestablish connection. Kirill Shevchenko, the governor of the National Bank of Ukraine there. We will try and reestablish connection and get him back if we can. All right, new details on what life is like for Ukrainians now living in Russian-occupied areas. CNN International Security Editor Nick Payton Walsh is in the Kherson region with
8: more.
9: Here in Ukraine, south, multiple areas now held by the Russians, some for a matter of months. And we've seen people emerging in large numbers out of Kherson still using intermittent gaps, it seems, in the Russian control of checkpoints. Some days it's impossible in the cars queue for Uh, tens of miles. Other days they're just waved through. But in Kherson itself, we've just heard that uh, officials, Ukrainian officials are concerned that those trying to leave are indeed being abused. It's increasingly hard, it seems, to get out and there are increasing signs of Russian elements in daily life there. The internet taken down, now back up. Locals telling us you may indeed even need to get a Russian passport to get a Russian SIM card to operate on future cell phone services there. And also too, the Russian room will have Having been in evidence there as a currency since the weekend. Two though in the heavily besieged city of Mariupol where still there's intense firefights happening around the Azovstal steel plant. In the areas the Russians do control they appear according to sources there to be trying to restore monuments of Soviet glory. The clenched fist with a flame coming from it symbolizing the Soviet fight against the Nazis and also too a Russian flag said to be flying over a key hospital there. These bids it seems by Russia to stamp its mark on territories it's taken in Ukraine, possibly ahead of uh, Sunday's key, sorry, Monday's key victory day parades. Unclear what this is doing to the local population's sense of being part of Ukraine, but certainly a bid by Moscow to suggest that it's got some sort of progress uh, in these uh, months of war.
1: Peyton Walsh there. Now, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says she's confident The bloc's new proposed sanctions against Russia will pass. That despite some opposition to parts of the package. Claire Sebastian joins me now on this. Claire, you and I could have discussed this any day this week and we could have had the same conversation. We don't want to talk about problems. We want to talk about solutions. What is the solution to get the likes of Slovakia, Hungary, the nations that have incredibly high dependency on Russian oil across the line on this embargo?
7: Yeah, Julia, what they're asking for is more time, essentially, Mm -hmm. in in terms of the Czech Republic, Slovakia, certainly uh, we think Bulgaria as well. They're saying that the the current phase-out plan, which would take off uh, all crude oil and all oil products off the market in the European Union by the end of this year, that just isn't enough time uh, for some of these countries. We are, in terms of the the discussions that are are currently in their third day in the EU Council, we're hearing some positive noises coming out. The Czech government uh, told us that they think things are moving in the right direction, which is also the exact same wording that we heard from Ursula von der Leyen. But Hungary remains one of the most ardent opponents to this. The the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, gave a radio interview uh, today which was quoted by his communications uh, chief where he essentially compared the sanctions package an atomic bomb. He said the the European Union is disrupting its own unity by doing this. And he said he has sent this back to Ursula von der Leyen asking for amendments, essentially. So it remains to be seen. Of course, the number one risk here is that they can't reach unanimity. The number two risk is that they do reach unanimity, but they do it with so much dilution to the package uh, that it essentially doesn't go much further than what they had already said they were going to do, which is phase out Russian fossil fuels by 2027. And that, gives Russia plenty of time to prepare. Russia, of course, will face pain if this goes through, but it is showing some resilience uh, in its economy. The ruble today uh, hit its strongest point against the dollar since around February 2020, so before even the pandemic. Artificial, of course, because the central bank is propping it up, but still a sign that they have managed to stabilize things there.
1: Also, one of the big questions, I think, as far as sanctions are concerned, is how to directly target Vladimir Putin himself and what's the best way to do that? And of course, a lot of the pressure was on targeting some of the oligarchs that are believed to to manage his wealth. It now appears, or at least it's rumoured, that perhaps Vladimir Putin's purported girlfriend could be included in the EU sanctions as well. What more do we know on that?
7: Yeah, so in the the playbook, as you say, of targeting people close to Putin, this would, I mean, allegedly, because he's always denied that there was even a relationship, this would allegedly hit as close as it gets, really. This is according to two EU sources speaking to CNN's Luke McGee that say that Alina Kabaeva, who is uh, a Russian former rhythmic gymnast, uh, has been uh, linked romantically to President Putin for many years now, could be included among those individual sanctions. That would be significant, of course, even though Putin has denied uh, that relationship. This is something that, according to the Wall Street Journal, U.S. officials stopped short uh, of doing because they were worried it would look like too much of an escalation. So potentially, Elina Karbaeva, we've also got uh, reports that from from our own Luke McGee as well, from his sources, that that, uh, the Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, is also on the list. He is, of course, an ardent supporter of President Putin, an arbiter in many ways of his sort of social program, his social reforms, uh, his more conservative ones that he has put in place during his tenure. So this would be significant, individual sanctions also hitting hard if this, pa- if this package of sanctions goes through.
1: Yes, and we shall wait to see if that can be achieved. And to your earlier point, what carve-outs are required for some of those nations in order to get them mm-hmm. across the line? Klai Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Welcome back. The opening bell sounding there on Wall Street. The American Swiss Foundation ringing the opening bell and fist bumps and cheers. Let's hope they can give some energy to markets as well. Stocks up and running after Thursday's sharp declines. And take a look at that as we are seeing fresh weakness for all the major averages with tech stocks once again the worst performers after Thursday's 5% drop. Stocks falling amid fears that to contain inflation, the Fed will have to raise rates well above what the market has already priced. Richard Clareda, the former Fed Vice Chairman, says rates must rise to at least 3.5%, so that's significantly above the current 1% levels. And new numbers showing the U.S. labor market remains strong with a greater than expected 428,000 jobs added last month with solid gains in manufacturing and in leisure and hospitality. Christine Romans joins us on these numbers. Christine, it's actually quite fascinating when you know that there are two available positions virtually for every unemployed person that yeah. actually they can find workers to hire into these positions actually. And that's the, the reality of the jobs market in the United States today.
8: You wonder if these numbers, at least the payrolls numbers, uh, would have been even hotter if they could have found the workers, right? I mean, this is a strong number. I would say though, Julia, strong, but slowing. We we've saw uh, some minor downward revisions. I haven't seen downward revisions in a very long time. So that's something important to note. And when I look at wage growth as well, strong, but slowing. So I think the moderation in these numbers is, is something that's interesting and, and, and important to watch. I mean, earlier today, I asked Mark Sandy um, from Moody's, you know, whether he thought that maybe peak inflation is close. And this is what he said.
5: Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, it's I think it's really tied to those oil prices and, yeah. and, you know, what we pay at the pump, uh, you know, because it's also driven up diesel prices, which makes the cost of food higher. And, you know, when we get those packages from Amazon on our front doorstep, you know, that, that costs more because of the higher diesel. So we need to get oil prices moving south. And this goes back to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, hopefully, the, you know, the worst of the fallout on oil prices is behind us.
8: We're also going to get some easier comparisons, I think, um, because of the calendar, really, right? In the months ahead, uh, you know, those base effects, uh, as, as as it's known, um, in terms of inflation figures. But overall, look, 5.5% wage growth wasn't the 5.6% we saw last month. So strong, right? But looks like it's showing some signs uh, of moderating. And and some moderating of the pace in the job market from here on out, Zandi and others have said, Julia, would be kind of a welcome signal here. The Fed, remembers trying to get inflation under control here so a more moderation in the job market might end up being a good thing overall yeah christine i was watching you earlier and and for me that was the key question to be
1: asking at the key moment are we at the point of peak inflation and just so that our viewers understand why this matters because you've got central banks all around the world with incredibly low interest rates knowing that they've got to hike because they see these inflation, these pricing prints coming in, and they're super, super high. But at the same time, we know and we can feel that the growth environment is slowing. And in certain parts of the world, like China, it's slowing dramatically. So is the risk here that you've got central banks trying to play catch up at the same time as actually they're going to be shocked, perhaps quicker than they realize, with prices then coming down? And I think that's part of what financial markets and investors are dealing with here. It is sheer uncertainty, but it's that fear of, They've been slow to react and now perhaps they're going to be slow to react when things slow.
8: Yeah. And I mean, look, we don't know for sure how it's going to play out. And you right. heard Mark there talk about all of these uncertainties. You know, the war in Ukraine, I, I'm still... Still, don't think we have a full sense of what that's going to mean for global food supplies and global food prices, right? I mean, we are just in the early innings, the early stages of understanding what's going to happen there. Um, Where the the energy, you know, energy, um, you know, energy embargoes, if you will, or restrictions and import restrictions of Russian uh, of Russian energy, that's going to remake the landscape of the global energy market, and that will be mm-hmm. difficult to figure out pricing uh, going forward here. At the same time, you have a world. Many governments that are trying to look towards sustainability. So they have to do two things at once. They have to scour the world for supplies. At the same time, they're trying to be more sustainable. That's going to be difficult politically. There's just a lot going on, which I think makes it, you know, boy, I want to say the peak in inflation is in. um, But there are a lot of factors here that we just don't have a a real handle on quite yet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you can add to that. We discussed earlier on in the show the the leader of China saying, Whatever it takes, we're going to maintain our zero Covid policy and the economic consequences of that, not just for China, but for everyone else trying to calibrate what the impact is going to be, too. Huge, huge uncertainty. Chrissy Remans, great to get your perspective. Have a good weekend. Stay with First Move. We'll have more just after this. Welcome back. Ukraine's Azov battalion has accused Russian troops of breaking a ceasefire at the Mariupol steel plant a short while ago. The battalion says a Ukrainian fighter was killed and several wounded when Russia fired at a car attempting to evacuate civilians. CNN has been unable to verify if a ceasefire was in effect. And earlier, Ukraine said more efforts to rescue civilians trapped in the Azov plant were planned for today. Ukraine's President Zelensky said last night the plant is now under non-stop shelling. The Russian invasion has displaced millions of Ukrainians, many of them children. Their trauma is being compounded by a loss of crucial early education and stability. Some organizations are trying to address one of those problems, and that's care. It's working to hire teachers, who are also Ukrainian refugees, bridging the language gap and trying to help children acclimatize to a new reality. Joining us now is Daria Hustenko. She's a Russian refugee who now works as a teacher in Poland. Daria, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. And you are Wonder Woman in my mind. You speak Ukrainian, you speak English, you also speak Polish. And you're a teacher, but you've also become almost everything, I think. Translator, family friend, confidant to the students and the parents. Tell us what it's been like.
6: Hello, Julia. Thanks for having me. Well, yes, it's an honor for me to be part of uh, this team, to be part of care and to be part of teaching program, because for teachers and for children, this is a lot. For teachers, this is a chance to be in a position of teaching, which we were doing previously, and to be a bridge between polish polish teachers and polish society and uh, ukrainian children for them mm, i'm not just a teacher as you said Uh, i i I help them in all the matters all the issues that they have i uh, constantly have a contact with parents Uh, sometimes they have personal questions some uh, troubles with applying for something so in uh, documents And this I do as well. And, of course, uh, translating and helping children during the classes and uh, their free time activities as well. And I know
1: you're suffering too. You've obviously left your home. You left your parents, I believe, back home. You brought your son with you. So you're also trying to deal with what he's going through and what you're going through. Um, How are the children doing? I think we all say children are incredibly resilient despite at times awful circumstances like these but but how are they how are they doing
6: well children they don't show uh, the effects as we show as adults but you can see that they have uh, suffered and they have they they of course have witnessed terrible things but coming to Poland to safe place it uh, you we also see i see how day by day they become uh, happier, they smile, they can't wait to go to school. For example, my son he is at the same school as uh, I am and uh, today morning he said uh, it's so pity that it's Friday we don't go to school tomorrow. He <laughs> likes it so much. He has friends, He has. Uh, they play football, they just talk in their language and teachers they are also incredible, they help a lot and we are all trying and helping and doing our best to to feel uh, to help children you know adjust as fast as as it's possible
1: yeah i can't imagine what it's like to have your son say that that he he's sad that it's the weekend cuz actually he loves school which i think is testament to what you and and everybody there is um is doing. Uh, The reason why you're able to do this, though, um, is the result of care, because, and you can talk us through this, they they approached you and said, look, you're a teacher, we'd love to hire you, give you a salary, put you to work, doing more than teaching, admittedly, in in your role. But how is that for you in terms of being a refugee, but actually knowing that you're going to have a steady income, money coming through the door, and, and be able to provide some sense of stability? To your son, even in a different country.
6: Well, yes, it's it's a lot. It is. When we were coming, I was afraid that I will not be able to find job, as many other women, as many other we, uh, refugees, and I was so lucky to be to find this opportunity and to be part of a teaching program uh, sponsored by CARE, and it means like. All the, our lives, they were taken away, unfortunately. And this little uh, understanding of stability, of having and giving, you know, having sense of your work, it is a lot to me. It means a lot to help Ukrainian children, to help Ukrainian women and refugees, to be at least little part of of something big. This This is very inspiring. And to me, it's great opportunity as much. I do what I can and I wish I could do more.
1: I think you're uh, holding the country together even if you're not physically present there. Uh, Daria, how are your family doing? How are your parents that that are still back there? And I think one of the obvious questions that, that we all wonder in this situation is, when this war ends, do you plan to go back home?
6: Well, about my parents, uh, my mom, she is here with me in Warsaw. Uh, to, we left together with my mom and my son and my father. He is uh, 63, but he decided to join the army. They didn't want him first, but he was so persistent. They took him finally. Yes. And he is now part of um, Ukrainian army fighting for our independence and for our country. And of course, we all want to return we hope this war ends very soon and we'll be able to go home and to rebuild our lives again
1: and that's most definitely the plan Mm,
6: yes yeah and does your son
1: ask that does he ask when you're going home
6: well yes he's asking all the time he 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 plans to go next week next month he's saying this is we finish school and then we return home we try to explain that it might take longer but he has no doubts as all the children he has no doubts that we are returning and it is just a temporary place for us now and we all want and children they want to return so much we i can see it they they talk about it every day that we are we are returning home this is This is not home. We have Ukraine is our
1: home. I think um, a fighting spirit and resilience is a family trait, Daria, and we wish you and your family well. Thank you for joining us from Warsaw, and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Thank you. you. So many towns and villages across Ukraine have been devastated by this war. Many of those left behind desperately searching for answers and hoping their missing loved ones will return. CNN's Sarah Seidner. Reports.
10: Every single day, Valentina Bobko waits for the moment her husband and son return home. On March 11th, I called them and Kolya just said, Hold on, wait a minute, and that's all. What do you think happened to your husband and son? I don't know, I have no idea. My husband and son won't hurt a fly, they are very kind days before Russian soldiers had occupied the town. When she returned home that day, neighbors told her her husband and son had been taken by Russian soldiers. Хай вернуть, або скажуть, де I want them to return my husband and son, or at least tell me where they are now. Where did they hide my boys? I can't find my place in life. Where are they? How am I supposed to live now? Tell me, how? She is not the only one suffering through this. Across the street and just around the corner, other families are longing for the day their husbands and fathers return. Yulia watched as Russians forcibly took their papa away,
7: <laughs>
10: leaving them with just pictures for now.
7: Yes,
10: that they the main thing is they took him and we don't know where he is. We hope we find him and they, the Russians, will be punished. They are relieved that this village is no longer crawling with Russian tanks, but it means there's no one left to ask where the men were taken. In the rubble of war, Gregory Lehogot has been searching for his brother, He says he was also picked up by Russian soldiers in the same time frame as the others.
4: From the story we heard from a guy, we
10: know he was beaten with a club. We met the guy he's talking about, who says he too was detained and held by Russian soldiers, who said it was their job to beat them each day. My hands were tied with this rope. Here it is, he says. And another two guys were handcuffed. One of the men didn't make it out alive, he says. In the morning, the Russian said that his body was already cold. He reported it to police, and it was determined that the man killed was Lihogot's brother, though no body has ever been found. They took the body away. Who knows where? We still don't know where he is. After hearing all this, how do you survive this? How do you live with this? It's very hard, very hard. We happened to be with Lyoko when he got permission from the homeowner to go on his bombed-out property. We went down a set of steep stairs. At the bottom, he stayed merely seconds. The memory of his brother's last moments. Too much for him to bear. Sarah Seidner, CNN, Bogdanivka, Ukraine.
1: The war in Ukraine leading to an ongoing fears of a global food supply crisis at home and abroad. It's clearly evident wherever you are in local supermarkets too. Claire Sebastian is back and talked to one boss about how he's changed the way he does business.
11: The national flower of Ukraine is, is the sunflower, and um, 80% of production actually comes out of Ukraine. That has stopped, so we're having to limit stocks now uh, and shut down our supplies of the 5-litre oils and move into 2-litre oils. But actually, the, the bigger impact is on our pre-prepared ready meals. Let's have a
7: look. Yeah. See yeah, if we can see it. Chicken korma.
11: Yeah, there you go. That'll have something in it. Check uh-huh.
7: like that one as well. This has got... Rapeseed
11: oil. Rapeseed oil. Yeah, Okay. there you go. So, the price of rapeseed oil is going up about 500%, um, but the price of sunflower oil is going up 1,000% where it's available, but really it's a a lack of availability.
7: Iceland is a 50-year-old chain of over 1,000 UK supermarkets known for its low prices. It's not alone in rationing cooking oil. We found several other British supermarkets doing the same. And that's not the only difficult decision they've had to make.
11: We took a stance and boycotted palm oil. Uh, We were the first retailer in the world to do that, and we reformulated 450 of our own label um, frozen products. And we actually swapped palm oil with sunflower oil. Um, So now there's no sunflower oil. We're obviously prioritizing other oils to use instead, like rapeseed oil, olive oil, Um, etc but unfortunately I never thought I'd say this we are now having to move back into to palm oil in some products.
7: Were you surprised by how many products were affected by this conflict?
11: Yes um, I mean vegetable oils are used in up to 50% of all supermarket products everything from ice cream to pies and pastries even lipstick I mean I I didn't realize this but apparently those noodles uh, come out of Ukraine and uh, that's why there's only one left on the shelf now.
7: Nestlé confirmed the instant noodles were manufactured at their factory in Kharkiv, a city under Russian bombardment since the very start of the conflict. That factory has stopped all production, and Nestlé says it donated all remaining supplies locally when the war started. Obviously it's not just Ukraine that's contributing to the price rises that you're having to to now swallow. Yeah,
11: um, I mean, Obviously the oil price has shot up and that's affecting the base commodity price of, of everything. We're having quite um, quite a lot of cost pressure from our suppliers. They're also having a shortage for example of things like fertilizer because a lot of fertilizer is um, derived from, from uh, potash mines in, in Russia. Uh, so in the UK we have um, a national minimum wage increase which is the right thing to do but Um, It's going up to £9.50 and that will add £20 million of of cost onto our business this year. Our electricity bill is is very large anyway. Last year it was about £65 million. Uh, But this this year coming, because of where energy prices are, it will be many times more than that.
7: Are you going to make any money this year?
11: We'll we'll certainly make less money than last year, that's for sure. Um, And we won't be taking any dividends. um, Any any, uh, profit that we have is reinvested in the business. I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, because we need to make sure that, you know, it's in my interest that we're here for for another 50 years.
1: And from supermarkets to space, four astronauts flashed down to Earth this morning, returning from a six-month stint on the International Space Station. A SpaceX capsule brought them home overnight, landing them in the Gulf of Mexico. A Russian cosmonaut is now in command of the space station. And a final look at what we're seeing across uh, the broader financial markets, steepening losses as you can see there, the Nasdaq down some 2.5%, all the major averages now significantly in the red in early trade tech stocks. Look at that once again. It brings tech losses over the past two days to, what well, I'm just doing the maths now, to around 7%. Yep, 7% over the last two days. And of course, stocks losing ground as a result of that relatively solid read on the U.S. jobs market in the United States. The U.S. economy adding more than 400,000 jobs net. That was a 12th straight month above that 400,000-figure manufacturing sector in particular remaining strong. What was it that Christine Romans called? it? solid but slowing. And that is the key. And nonetheless... Whatever it is in terms of the economy now or the inflation, print, the Federal Reserve knows it has to keep raising rates into a very uncertain environment. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, have a good weekend. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is up next.
0: When you work, you work next level